0: Good afternoon, thank you for coming. My name is Malou Innocent. I'm a foreign policy analyst here at the Cato Institute. It is my pleasure to welcome you all here today. It seems that most Americans have turned away from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and for that matter, the wars in Bosnia, Kosovo, and Somalia. But in his new book, Doing bad by doing good, while humanitarian action fails, Dr. Christopher J. Coyne writes that quote: "It is safe to say that in the post-9/11 world, state-led humanitarian action will become one of the most important policy issues, if not the most important, in international affairs." Unquote. Indeed, arguments continue to thrive for intervening abroad in order to repair failed states, alleviate human suffering, and foster long-term economic development. Whether we call those policies capacity building, counterinsurgency. Responsibility to Protect, Short-Term Emergency Relief, or Long-Term Foreign Assistance. Today, Dr. Coyne will lay out for you the major themes contained in his book, which based on a comprehensive examination of the empirical literature, as well as a wide range of U.S., U.N., and non-governmental reports, calls into question the efficacy of state-led humanitarian action. Dr. Coyne is the F.A. Harper Professor of Economics at George Mason University the Associate Director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center, and the Director of Graduate Studies for the Department of Economics. He serves as the co-editor of the Review of Austrian Economics, the co-editor of the Independent Review, and the book review editor of Public Choice. In addition to Doing Bad by Doing Good, he has authored (coughs) After War, The Political Economy of Exporting Democracy, also (coughs) published by Stanford University Press, and has authored numerous academic articles, book chapters, and policy studies. (laughs) For a fair and balanced assessment of Dr. Coyne's exposition is Dr. M. Peter McPherson, who among his many other initiatives is the founding co-chair of the Partnership to Cut Hunger and Poverty in Africa, was general counsel to the Reagan-Bush transition, and was for much of 2003 the director of uh, economic policy for the Coalition Provisional Authority of Iraq. From 1981 to 1987, he served as the administrator of the United States (laughs) Agency for International Development. He currently serves as the president of the Association of Public and Land-Grant Universities. Following each speaker's prepared remarks and a bit of back and forth between them, I will open up the discussion to audience participation and questions. (laughs) And with that, I turn the podium over to Chris. All
1: right. Well, thank you, Malou. I appreciate your efforts organizing this. And Maria Anderson, too, it was very helpful in getting this all um, organized. And, and thank you for taking the time to come and, and speak on this important topic. And thank all of you, as well. I very much appreciate it. Uh, the mic, OK. I can try to speak a little louder, as well. I don't know. Um, yeah, OK, pointed towards the face. All right. All right. <laughs>
2: So the maybe. floor drops yeah. under next. <laughs> <laughs> i got to be careful
1: what I say. Um, all right, so what I want to do today is, is cover, as Malou said, kind of some of the main themes in the book, and, and I can't hope to do justice to you all aspects of this complex topics, but hopefully I can give you an idea of what I'm arguing. So really, this book came about as a follow-up to my previous book, After War. And in that book, I focused on U.S. efforts to export democratic institutions abroad through military occupation. And one of the questions I always got when I started talking or presenting that book was, "Okay, even if we buy into your argument that the U.S. isn't very good at exporting sustainable liberal democratic institutions, which, of course, many people disagree with in itself, What about humanitarian action? And then they would uh, bring up some instance of of terrible human suffering and they would say, well, of course, you must believe that the US government or the governments of developed countries have an active role to play internationally to address um, human suffering, instance X or Y. So I started pursuing this line of research to answer that question, and very quickly I realized that they are. The questions can't be separated because what's called humanitarian action, short-term relief, has become so blended with longer-term development and military and foreign policy goals that while categorically we can separate those things out, uh, it becomes very difficult to ever isolate one or just to stop at a certain point. If you look at what falls under the guise of humanitarian uh, action or state-led humanitarian action, very quickly it transforms into long-term development, military operations, counterterrorism operations, and so on. Those things have become so integrated, especially in the post-9-11 world, uh, that it becomes a very complex topic very quickly. So when I talk about state-led humanitarian action, what I'm talking about is any coercive or non-coercive action that's intended to alleviate suffering. Uh, and I, I purposefully keep this definition broad. And just to give you some examples of things that fall under the purview of my definition, uh, Hurricane Katrina in the United States, that is a sta- state-led effort domestically uh, to alleviate human suffering, uh, extreme poverty, extreme poverty the various initiatives of the US government and international community more broadly that aim to alleviate uh, poverty around the world. Haiti, in uh, post-earthquake uh, Haiti in 2010, uh, and Libya, that's a, that's a more recent case. That would be an example of a coercive uh, human, state-led humanitarian action. And there's many others as well that you can think of, but I just wanted to give you a flavor for the, for the broad array of things that I'm trying to address in this book. And really what I try to do is apply the economic way of thinking to develop a general theory of humanitarianism. So why economics? And, and what I want to do is argue that economics is important for two reasons. The first is that ultimately, if you think about it, issues of humanitarian, uh, humanitarianism, and vulnerability to humanitarian crises are issues of economic development. Uh, Countries that are wealthier, societies that are wealthier, suffer less from humanitarian crises. When a natural disaster occurs, which can't be prevented, uh, wealthier countries are better able to prepare and respond to it. This is an empirical fact. Uh, Likewise, Wealthier countries require certain institutions, typically protections of property rights, basic constraints on governments, and so on. When these things are in place and they're well functioning, it limits the violations of rights by governments against citizens. So in wealthier countries, we tend, it's not always the case, but we tend to see fewer cases of government uh, violations of, of human rights and humanitarian crises of those sorts. Second is that economics focuses on constraints. It focuses on the fact that we face scarcity, we have a scarce amount of resources, and we have to figure out how to allocate those resources. And in taking that into account, what the economic way of thinking focuses on is the constraints we face, not just in terms of the quantity of resources, but also our intelligence, human reason, our ability to allocate resources in in a manner that makes people better off. Now, this might appear obvious, but if you look at Pretty much almost, I don't want to say all, but almost any quote from those involved in politics in general, you will see that they pretend like constraints don't exist. One example, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. This quote, this is in front of uh, the Council of Foreign Relations uh, talk she gave. uh, We can do whatever we want if we just try hard enough. I'm sure you've all heard politicians say, we sent a man to the moon, therefore we can do X right? And then they insert whatever they want to accomplish there, and it's supposed to imply we can do whatever we want because we sent a man to the moon. Second, this is following uh, the Haiti earthquake. It's ironic, but after the immense suffering, there's a silver lining. We can finally put Haiti back together the way we've intended for all these years. Again, we're not constrained in what we can do. We can literally redesign societies in a manner that makes their citizens better off, that aligns with U.S. foreign policy goals, and so on. We have that ability. We don't face constraints in doing that. This is the mentality that underpins the humanitarian complex, the humanitarian industry, which is international uh, in in general and encompasses not just government bureaus, but also a a wide array of NGOs that are dependent on government contracts, of private contractors, and so on. So, Given that, here's what I want to talk about, and here's what I attempt to do in the book. Let's just talk about constraints. What is it that governments can do in attempting to help people who are suffering? No one denies that people suffer around the world. Many of these discussions turn on moral arguments. You'll often hear people say, we ought to do or we must do something to help them. And you understand why. When all of us see images of human suffering, it's a natural human impulse to want to help people. And so we say, we must do something. Here's the issue, though. In the attempt to do something, to act quickly, it's not just that efforts might fail, have no effect. It's very possible, and oftentimes it's actually the case, that efforts to help those in need generate an array of negative consequences which impose significant costs on the very people we are attempting to assist. In that instance, refraining from intervention is preferable to intervening, even if you are driven by the best of intentions. In other words, economics and the economic way of thinking cannot by itself form moral judgments. Moral judgments fall outside the purview of economics, but it can inform those judgments. Because when we take into uh, account the relevant constraints, things that initially appear to have moral weight, we must help people who are starving. Once we take into account constraints and and the reality that we face, those things may not actually have moral weight, because we can't accomplish them in practice. And that's what we want to focus on. So let's talk for a moment about what the limits of humanitarian action are. Any of you who have taken a principles of microeconomics class probably remember something like this. Your professor talked about scarcity and then talked about the economic problem. The economic problem is how do we allocate scarce resources to their highest valued use? That's the economic problem that we teach all our students in the first week of principles of microeconomics. The weird or odd part is that economists, once they move, leave the classroom, once they become development experts, forget that. They say, I know how to best allocate scarce resources in order to maximize their value. So let's talk for a moment about what aid can and can't do. Aid can increase outputs, predetermined outputs. This just requires spending more money on something. I can say, I would like more water. Last week I spent a dollar on water and got one bottle. I will spend two dollars this week and I get two bottles. I have increased the output of water. This is not shocking or surprising, although, If you read most reports from development agencies, they they refer to things like breathtaking successes and then point that out. We enrolled more kids in school, right? We built more hospitals. You can spend money on stuff and get more stuff. This is a logical consequence of spending more money on resources and building things or buying things. That is increased outputs. That is not economic development. Economic development requires utilizing scarce resources continually reallocating them in ways that increase outputs, but outputs that people value. And here's the issue. How do you determine what people value? Well, there's a small episode, not so small actually, in the history of economic thought called the socialist calculation debate. This occurred in the late 1800s into the 1900s, and it was undertaken on the side of the defenders of capitalism by Ludwig von Mises and his student F.A. Hayek. And they were arguing against the socialists. This was not an ideological debate. It was a purely economic debate. And the debate went something like this. What is the best way to organize economic production? What is the best way to deal with the fact that we face the scarcity constraints? The socialists said we should rationalize production by having the smartest people in society, the economists, the engineers, the technocrats, get together in a room, and plan what should be produced. We will avoid waste. We will produce only what people need, as determined by us. And we will outproduce capitalism while avoiding things like business cycles, unemployment, and so on. Mises and Hayek said, not going to happen. Not an ideological argument, a practical argument. Why not? As Hayek pointed out in his famous article, The Use of Knowledge in Society, Economic knowledge is not given. It's not given to you in a predefined bundle. In other words, you don't know the best way to use scarce resources to maximize their value. We have to rely on markets, profit, loss, and the price signal to communicate that. This is important. Why is it important? Well, think about how humanitarian aid in the broadest sense, whether it's for short-term relief, whether it's for development, is allocated. Is it closer to the central planning model or to the market model? Well, it's closer to the central planning model. You have bureaucrats that determine outputs, then you have other bureaucrats that implement those initiatives, and hopefully, certain output targets are achieved. And that's how it works. In other words, If a country was organized like the aid industry is organized, the aid industry would tell that country to reform itself, to become more market-oriented. So the irony in all this is that we have a top-down, centralized, bureaucratic structure planning markets which are desirable precisely because markets do not need to rely on top-down, centralized knowledge. Now, fortunately, central planning is largely dead. In most places, not in all, if you've been following what's going on in Venezuela, you see that this is not the case, right? I I think I read yesterday or the day before, authorities raided a juice warehouse because you're not allowed to have juice uh, in a certain quantity, toilet paper shortages, and so on. So this is the limits of what aid can accomplish. It can increase predetermined outputs. It cannot solve the basic economic problem. You cannot centrally plan development. Why does this matter? What are the claims made by many proponents of foreign interventions? We can end poverty. We can design societies to go back to the case of Haiti in a manner which we've always meant to, and that requires some combination of immediate short-term relief and long-term development aid. And look at case in case of foreign intervention, and this is the argument, right? Even in cases like Libya, where it's limited intervention, what happens? Well, you overthrow the government, there's a power vacuum, now there's discussion of, well, now what? Do we intervene again? Do we send aid? Or do we just let it take its course? More often than not, it's followed up by subsequent interventions. So this is the the limits of what foreign aid in any form can accomplish. It can increase predetermined outputs. You can buy more water. You can't plan development. But here's the puzzle we face now. There's a puzzle, which is what? Oftentimes, buying water and moving it from point A to B, which is a purely technological problem, the water never gets to point B. It gets stolen along the way. It gets lost along the way. It ends, it ends up in the, in the hands of corrupt politicians and criminals. Why does that happen? Further, why is there an inherent tendency in um, government bureaus to constantly push beyond these limits? Why don't they say, look? let's just focus on delivering short-term aid. We can do that. It's just a matter of transforming inputs and outputs. We're going to focus all our efforts on short-term relief and then let things take their course. We're going to give people some minimal level of housing or shelter in the broadest sense. We're going to give them water, and then we're going to back off. Instead, what we see is an ever-increasing portfolio of activities that's undertaken by a variety of state bureaus that expands and subsumes a variety of private actors, and we see exactly the opposite of any approximation of humility. We need to understand why that's the case. In order to do that, we have to shift to the second aspect of the argument. So we have kind of the knowledge aspect, and then we shift to the political economy aspect. And in the book, I talk about three aspects of this political economy argument. And I'll briefly summarize each. Again, I can't do justice to them in detail, but hopefully I'll give you the main main kind of gist of this. The first is any time you inject millions upon millions upon billions of dollars into any setting, you're going to get intense competition. One of the great myths of humanitarianism is that people who are in the private sector, for-profit people, are greedy because they're associated with profit. But when we move humanitarian action into either private NGOs or government or some combination, the public interest, they seek out the public interest and work in the public interest economics points out that there's competitions in both scenarios, the nature of that competition shifts. In other words, you make money available, what happens? You start getting infighting to control resources, to control policy, and to control how the money is spent. What happens? Well, you get infighting both domestically, within the U.S. government and the various agencies involved. You get competition between NGOs. Just look at the number of NGOs before The earthquake and the injection of aid and after, it increased dramatically. Of course, Haiti was known as the Republic of NGOs before the earthquake because they don't have a functioning government. It's basically a bunch of NGOs who go there, get government money, and then funnel it out to um, their their connections. Um, And the person that is lost in this whole process is the supposed customer. Who is the ultimate customer of foreign aid? The person who is suffering. But if you think about it, What happens to the customer? They have no voice. They have no feedback. Really, the customer in the foreign aid complex is people down the hierarchy. It's people that control the resources at the top, and then as they're funneled down, there's various customers who get to control the resources and the policy, and how those resources are allocated, and their influence in the broader scheme of things. It's not the actual person that's suffering. There's no feedback. And that ultimately greatly reduces the adaptability and the flexibility and the effectiveness of state-led humanitarian action. Second, bureaucracy. When I talk about bureaucracy, I draw on the work of two people who are, who are well-known to most of you. Uh, Bill Niskanen, of course, who, who's very well-known to Cato, wrote, wrote a classic book on this. And Gordon Tulloch uh, also wrote a classic book. And, and they looked at the industrial organization of how bureaucracies operate. And to summarize a couple of their main findings, the first is that bureaucracies by definition are nonprofits so they're not subject to profit loss mechanisms like for profit firms are so the way they operate their benchmark for success are discretionary budget and the number of subordinates that work for that bureau for that for that agency this means that there's an inherent tendency for bureaus and agencies to expand to push beyond their natural limits what we call mission creep Here's a, a, a brief quote from Jessica Einhorn, who was a managing director at the World Bank. This is from a foreign, policy, uh, foreign affairs article called The World Bank's Mission Creep. The bank, referring to the World Bank's uh, mission, has become so complex that it strains, cr- uh, it, it, const- excuse me, it strains reason to portray the bank as a manageable organization. It continually takes on challenges that it can't, con- can't possibly handle. What's her point? How do you get more money in politics? You continually create demand for your product. How do you do that? You promise the next big thing. We can end poverty if we have more resources. We can rebuild these societies if we have more resources. And it's crucial. There's always new challenges. There's new challenges to the United States and its citizens. And if we don't undertake those challenges, there'll be a crisis. So give us more and more resources. That is mission creep. That is the expansion in the array of of activities. And the incentives that are inherent in, in, in bureaucracies encourage this behavior what else do we see enormous waste one of the insights of niskanen and, and tullock is that for profit firms have an incentive to minimize waste because there's residual claimants there's owners who benefit from reducing waste in the form of profit in bureaus there's no equivalent now you might say taxpayers well i want any of you as taxpayers to explain to me just the organizational structure if I name a bureau, let alone the complex chain of legislators and oversight committees and so on involved, and you'll quickly realize that you can't do it. uh, And it would take a lot of work just to understand that. In other words, they're not directly subject to you and I as as residual claimants. And of course, a residual claimant owner can sell their share, and you and I can't sell our shares of any government bureau, unfortunately. So what happens? Pick up. Reports from the inspector general for the Afghan reconstruction, the Iraq reconstruction. Pick up a report from aid agencies that are audits on aid agencies. What do you see? Lots of waste, lots of unaccountable behaviors, with no one being punished for it, no one being fired for it, no one being held accountable. Because oftentimes, there's not clear lines of accountability. So what ultimately happens, you have a tendency for bureaus to expand their array of activities and an incentive to spend money as quickly as they can, what's referred to in the business as the burn rate, to get their burn rate up. Why? Well, you signal observable outputs that you're accomplishing things by doing things. But again, think about the core point I raised earlier. Doing stuff, spending money, is not the same as as making people better off. Spending money on things that improve their well-being, what they value, is what makes them better off. So absent that incentive, waste and more waste should not be a surprise. Yet we see it, and politicians and policymakers continually act shocked that this is happening. Finally, it's this idea of system effects. System effects, or complex systems, is this idea that there's a limit on human reason. We can't understand the complexities of the world. So when systems theorists talk about complex systems, there's typically two aspects. Number one, there's an array of interconnected units or elements, and those units or elements generate an outcome which is fundamentally different from each of their individual parts. Some of you who read a lot of Hayek would call this a spontaneous order. There's a broader order that is beyond the grasp of any individual mind or group of minds. Why does this matter? Well, the type of thinking that dominates state-led humanitarian action is linear. It's engineering-type thinking. A plus B equals C. Think about how these operations run. More aid, more outputs, good. Let's try to learn lessons learned that we can apply to other cases. Uh, Implying what? That somehow one complex instance is the same as another complex instance and so on. Linear thinking dominates. Systems thinking is neglected. Once you appreciate systems thinking, It's very humbling because you realize you can't understand the world around you. This does not mean that you can't do stuff. It means that there's always going to be a wide array of unintended consequences, which you can't anticipate. And then the question becomes how flexible, how quickly can you respond to them and do you have an incentive to? And precisely because of the logic of politics, which I outlined when I was talking about the first two bullets, there's a weak incentive to respond to it. A brief example, think about Libya. A lot of people hail Libya as a vindication of the responsibility to protect norm, of successful intervention because we just did a no-fly zone and then we got out. Well, what happened prior? It's true Gaddafi was a really bad guy. No one denies that. He was terrible in terms of human rights and so on. So we get rid of him. We assist in the effort to get rid of him. Now you have a power vacuum. You have militias running the country for the most part. You have a, a state, but it's quite weak. And what else do you have? About two or three weeks ago, the United Nations, a panel at the United Nations, said that Weapons are flowing out of Libya at an alarming rate into the broader region and fueling conflict. Of course, we know what happened in Mali when uh, some of Gaddafi's rebels fled, uh, and then you needed a French intervention to deal with that. And there's going to be subsequent unintended consequences throughout the system for decades to come. You can never do one thing. This is not to say by any means that that the United States should not have intervened to uh, to displace uh, Gaddafi. This by itself is not an argument for that. Rather, it's the point is this, things that on the face of them appear to be net humanitarian benefits like displacing a dictator, it becomes a lot murkier and unclear once we take into account this chain of unintended consequences that's going to emerge. And we have to at least appreciate the fact that it could generate a very bad situation worse than what we were initially trying to tackle. Let me summarize this for you with one picture. This is a famous cartoon from the Soviet Union. So, I'm going to combine the knowledge problem and the political economy problem. And if you, you can just remember this, you'll, you'll remember the core argument. This, this cartoon's called the one ton nail. So, the, the, factory man, the factory worker says to the manager, Who needs a nail that big? There's a one ton nail hanging from the crane. And the factory worker goes, Who cares? The important thing is we fulfilled the plan in one fell swoop. What's the idea here? Central planner said, One ton of nails, that's what we want to produce. Pass the directive down. They passed it down, right? What's the incentive? Meet the output target as quickly as you can. What do you produce? A one-ton nail. What's the point? No one can use this. This is an increase in output. You start putting on your economic glasses, you'll see one-ton nails all around you when it comes to state-led humanitarian action. You're all familiar with these type of examples. Katrina, one-ton nails. Lots of trailers sitting there, right? That's a one-ton nail. No one could use the trailers. Output increased. If you buy into GDP, GDP increased because government spending increased. Did this make people better off? No. We wasted resources. Afghanistan. This is from the Foreign Relations Committee. 97% of their GDP is a result of foreign injections spent on security funding. It's fake. It's not real economic development. Why does this matter? If you just look at macro aggregate statistics, if you fall prey to what many of my colleagues in economics fall fall prey to you, you, you have a fetish for GDP measures. What happens? In this instance, literally, economic growth is falling from the sky. You have, you're injecting aid in, and it's increasing GDP. That is not real development. That's not society-wide development. What's society-wide development? Allowing people to engage in innovation and experimentation and discover the best way of using resources. So let, let me just sum up here and, and provide some, uh, some concluding remarks. One of the key points in the book I make and as you can tell, I'm skeptical of, of government efforts to do this. But one of the mistakes people make in these debates on foreign aid is they'll say things like this. Foreign aid can work or it can't work. And then they cherry pick examples, very much like I just did to show you. And they'll say, here's an example of it not working. And then so the proponent will come back and say, "Nope, here's a health indicator or people that we fed over here. See, it can work. And then the skeptic says, but here's waste. And then the other side can come back. And this goes on forever. And of course, if you ask development ex- experts, whether they're practitioners, economists in the academy, whatever, does aid work? You will get dramatically different answers depending on who you ask. So the, the right way to think about it is not can aid work or can, can it work. It can work. I told you, the government can buy water and hand it to people. That's aid working. The question you need to think to yourself and to the, about the answer to, and the way I frame it in the book, is can government, given what we know about how governments operate, in terms of the knowledge problem and the political economy issues, can they systematically provide assistance to those who are suffering? Systematically, across cases. No one denies that if you try something enough, it's going to work. But pointing that out and saying, well, if we just keep trying, if we have more effort and we have more knowledge about what failed in the past, we just keep spending money, it will work eventually. No one denies that every once in a while something's going to work. It's how confident are you that systematically it's going to work? Think domestically. If you think it can work internationally, here are some of the questions you have to ask yourself. Why does the United States Postal Service run a massive deficit constantly? If top-down bureaucratic operations run so effectively, if that's the way to create development, how come we can't deliver mail profitably? It's a monopoly. They've cut off competition. It should be straightforward. For some reason, they can't. What about our education system? No matter where you fall on the side of the state's role in education, many people, or most people, I would argue, would argue that we can do better to improve education. That's a bureaucratic setup. If if you can't get the outcomes you desire domestically there, why do you think it's going to happen internationally? Katrina, we have an entire agency set up for FEMA for the sole purpose of addressing national disasters domestically, and you know the response to Katrina. If that's the case domestically, what gives you confidence that intervening abroad in extremely more complex circumstances will generate better outcomes? Again, in a systematic and consistent manner. Not every once in a while we get a good outcome. So at the end of the book, I provide what I I call the constrained approach. It's my alternative. And the constrained approach recognizes constraints. It recognizes that there are severe constraints on what we know. By the way, economists know in some sense what economic development requires, private property rights, constraints on government. But we don't know how to go about designing and getting those things. We don't know how to impose them on people where they don't exist. And we should just admit that. Part of making intelligent policy, part of not harming people that we want to help is to say, I don't know. And that's okay. But then we shouldn't pretend we do and design policies based on a lack of knowledge. But what kind of things can we do? We can focus on domestic policies. There's lots domestically the US and other developed countries can do to assist people who are suffering. What kind of things can they do? Well, let's remove barriers to economic development. What are those barriers? Trade. Trade is the best way to remove human suffering. It is the best way to increase development, to improve the well-being of those who are suffering. Trade in goods, services, and the movement of people. Notice the type of things that go on. We can point out, for instance, instances where agricultural initiatives have helped people in poor countries develop. But we impoverish those very people through our agricultural policies, both in the United States and European Union with the common agricultural policy and other developed countries. So we impoverish them by heavily subsidizing our own agricultural production, by raising barriers to trade for those people. And we say, boy, they're poor. Now let's go help them with their agriculture. There's a fundamental irony there. Fundamental irony. What else can we do? Look into ways of removing barriers to migration. Now, you might say, OK, that's a, that might be a great way to increase long-term development, but what about short-term humanitarian crises? Well, we have a great natural experiment with this following the earthquake in Haiti. After the earthquake in Haiti, there were 200,000 Haitians in the United States who weren't properly documented anymore because they, their uh, papers expired. What happened was, instead of sending them back, the U.S. government says, we are going to grant you temporary protected status so you can work here in the United States and you won't be deported, even though your your papers have expired. Well, what happened? The World Bank estimates that those 200,000 people sent back $360 million in remittances to Haiti. To put that in perspective, it's more money than the U.S. government sent back over that same year. In other words, allowing 200,000 people to voluntarily work here made them better off and served as a form of private humanitarian action, which sent money back to people who needed it, friends and family, in the country where they came from. Why can't we look into things like that as an alternative to state-led humanitarian action? Those are the type of things I I argue in the book. Now, I'm going to end on a note of optimism. In the book, I have a section called Reasons for Pessimisms and Reason for Optimism. Very quickly, the pessimism. I have no confidence whatsoever that a lot Almost all of what I've said to you will be implemented any time in the future for the same reason I said it to you, which is there is an entire aid industry that is, self, is self-enforcing and self-extending. They benefit from a continuation of these policies, and uh, they solve one problem. They'll find 10 others they need to fix. And uh, from that standpoint, there's no clear way out of this. In the post-9-11 world, this has become even more entwined and larger, right? We've had a rise of, now it's called the three Ds, defense diplomacy, development are all elevated and intertwined because we have to engage in the war on terror. But once we get rid of the terrorists, we have to generate development in order to prevent future terrorists from coming up. Uh, in their place, so now you've intertwined all these things. Um, The idea of humanitarianism as an end in itself has been lost. Uh, uh, Humanitarianism has been largely militarized uh, as the Department of Defense, which which receives about $12 for every dollar that uh, aid and diplomacy receives for the most recent budget. Uh, So the the, uh, defense has the most influence over policy, so that's exactly what we should expect if you understand how uh, politics works. Uh, But let me close with some some reasons for optimism, and then I'll I'll finish up. The reason I'm I'm optimistic is that if you look at economic freedom over time around the world, on average, economic freedom is increasing. So the Fraser Institute puts out the uh, Economic Freedom of the World Index, which many of you are familiar with. And uh, between 1980 and 2005, average economic freedom increased uh, at a good clip. Uh, So it's on a scale of 0 to ten. Zero is completely unfree. 10 is completely free. In 1980, economic freedom was about 5.5 on their scale. This is average economic freedom around the world. 2005, it was uh, about 6.6, and that, that's a good increase for 25 years. Uh, it's significant, and that just means that governments around the world have adopted more free market policies, uh, more market-oriented policies, which is exactly what's required uh, for development. Remittances. I mentioned these in, in the form of uh, in the context of Haiti. Uh, Globally, remittances are a significant aspect of humanitarianism. In 2009, uh, from all OECD countries to developing countries, remittances, payments from from individuals back to people in their homeland, was $170 billion. Uh, To put that in in, in comparative terms, for that same year, official development uh, assistance was $135 billion. So remittances are a very important and significant part of private humanitarian action. Uh, And there are no panacea, of course, uh, but I would argue that that those who give money, uh, private money, have an incentive to make sure that it's being used in a way that they value as uh, relative to a a bureaucrat who is removed from from that process. Finally, the global informal economy. Uh, The journalist Robert North has a great book. It's called The Stealth of Nations where he talks about the extent of the global informal economy. He estimates it at $10 trillion. These are not illegal activities like hitmen men and, and slavery and things like that, by the way. These are legitimate activities, $10 trillion. Uh, in, in, to put that in perspective, if you, look at global, uh, if you look at GDP by country, that would make it the third largest uh, country, the global informal economy. There's the US, China, and then you'd have the global informal, informal economy at $10 trillion. What does that mean? The problem here is not entre- the entrepreneurial spirit that is alive and well around the world. The problem is that individuals are under the thumb of predatory policies and uh, of governments, and they are not allowed to engage in mutually beneficial economic interactions and transactions. And it limits what they can do. Informal economic activities preferable to none, but preferable to informal is formal, because you can take advantage of credit markets, legal systems, and so on. <laughs> I'll leave this up. These are kind of the main things I talked about. But here's the gist of this. The argument I'm making in in doing bad by doing good is, in some sense, really straightforward. It's novel, but only novel if you are completely unfamiliar with the principles of microeconomics, from what your professors taught you very early on, or what you, human reason, right? I face constraints in my life. I have to figure out how to do the best I can, given those constraints. All of us live that way. What I try to point out is that when we neglect economics, when addressing economic issues, and going back to my earlier slide, humanitarianism is ultimately an economic issue, what happens is we run the risk of designing perverse and harmful policies which harm the very people that we attempt to help. Ignoring basic economics, what I call the economics of humanitarianism, will in no way disprove economics. What it will do is continue to impose significant harms among millions and millions of people around the world.
2: Thank you very much. Good afternoon. It's good to be back at the Cato Institute again. Appreciate the opportunity to be at this forum, Dr. Cohen, I think the problem, the the, the problem I have with the book, as core, is not many of the criticisms you have of trying to crash build economies in Troubled countries is not the various comments you have on criticism of this program or not, because many of those comments I've made over, over many years. What I do have a problem with is that you've said, okay, we got all these problems in Haiti and Afghanistan and so forth, and that means that anything other than immediate delivery for the suffering is either deeply suspect or shouldn't be done. And I think that's a fair statement of what you've said. And I just think, and do respect, and I do respect you, and I've seen your work, and I know you're doing some wonderful things at that great university, George Mason, I think that's wrong. And I'd like to get into that, because I think that there are patterns of And I disagree, in fact, that we, to quote your book, there is no known formula for promoting growth and development. I don't think that's true. I think there's some principles that we've learned, hard-learned principles, over a long period of time. And I want to get into that. We know that the general view is that over the last 20 years, there are about about 1 billion fewer people In absolute poverty now. A good share that is contributed is thought to be because of economic growth in poor countries. Part of economic growth is both the market liberalization, free markets, and so forth, uh, but it's also what governments and others do, to strengthen people's capacity to participate in those markets. It's education, it's technology, and a bunch of things. Now, remember, I come at this as true as six and a half years during the Reagan administration running the foreign aid program, but I also come at this as a former chair of Dow Jones, the publisher of the Wall Street Journal, uh, several years at Bank of America as an international banker. I mean, I if. I'm absolutely a markets person, but I also believe that that uh, well, I believe that markets are people having the capacity, uh, not the burdens that restrict, to be able to do things. Mm-hmm. And so, this outside help, that's much beyond the immediate delivery to the suffering, is a huge contributor to this growth. Let me get into this a little more. Let me get into some examples, really. Uh, examples of helping people with capacity, but also beyond this immediate suffering. Childhood vaccination campaigns by UNICEF. Now, those kids weren't sick when they were given those vaccines. And that UNICEF campaign was significantly paid for by AID, US taxpayer, and donors around the world. There's no question that that vaccine vaccine effort uh, has saved millions of lives. When I was running AID uh, in coordination with UNICEF, there was a grand old man who is now gone, Jim Grant, who was such a visionary, one of the great people in the 20th century. Uh, who is my partner in that effort, on um, an effort to what is called oral rehydration therapy. Basically, it's Gatorade. It, it rehydrates kids who, who are dehydrated be- through, because of diarrhea. We mobilized the world in this effort. I mean, we had use of this uh, in places like Egypt jump up from 5% to 80% in about a four-year period. Uh, there's no. I've seen kids there where people you feed a kid teaspoon by teaspoon, and uh, over a few hours, looking near death and being substantially revived. Now we didn't just deliver this ORT. We built systems. We advertised. We pushed. We established sustainable ability of of that of many places to do that. And by the way, in many cases. We did this through subsidized sales through, through small retailers. The world is rid of smallpox. Uh, in fact, too few people may be getting smallpox vaccinations now. We That effort, that huge effort, largely financed by the U.S. government, what the world is now trying to do with polio is to try to replicate that. Uh, the club of Rome, a few a few decades ago I uh, got all excited and, and I, I there were some problems with their analysis but they had a point in, in, to some extent where they said the world may run out of food and they pointed to places like India which had was having these reoccurring famines uh, historically reoccurring well, the population world was growing, what are we going to do? In uh, a place like India, China was really pushing. AID and some others, but it was largely AID, financed the technolo- the creation, the new technology of miracle white rice and wheat, the green revolution. This grand old man who's now gone, uh, Norm Borlaug, who... I was privileged to work with uh, for such a long period of time. He died recently. Uh, That fed millions of people. And we didn't just create the technology. We helped in India and Pakistan and uh, Mexico, around the world, actually get this technology in place. Now, that wasn't just feeding people like we did in the famine in 84 and 85 that I was in charge of for Reagan in Africa. That was doing much more. Now, under the analysis, to coin that, that's outside of the perimeter. I don't, I kind of halfway think you wouldn't believe that, but that's what your book would suggest. AID sometimes has worked very hard with governments to get them to adjust their policies to be more market-oriented. That was certainly what we were doing during the Reagan years. I remember my boss, in fact, with George Shultz, I remember a president of Costa Rica, for that to make the exact point, calling up Reagan saying, McPherson won't release our next tranche of foreign aid unless we at least open up our banking system. And you need to get that straight, please, Mr. Secretary. And Shultz, to his credit, as he did so often, said, I agree with McPherson. And we got stuff done. Now, I do not that's beyond feeding people. And there are limits to policy dialogue, the term of art in those days. But the government, the US government, other donors have a a role in my judgment. Something I care deeply about, having been president of Michigan State all those years and being so involved in education, uh, is the US outside parties have trained AID, for example, many, many thousand people uh, in developing countries that have gone back home and had a huge difference. After all, in the end, what a country can do, what a community can do, is the capacity of the people in the, uh, as individuals. It's made an immeasurable difference. Some of you remember what uh, uh, what Taiwan and Korea looked like in, let's say, 1950. Really very, very underdeveloped countries, but it was sustained effort in educating K-12 and then beyond. Harvard, 20 years ago, did an extensive study to try to figure out just what did happen to Korea and Taiwan. I mean, there are lots of reasons. There, there, these are never easy. But the, the very strong conclusion was the work that AID did, and particularly, actually, in Taiwan and Korea in the k education system was just critical that definitely wasn't just immediate humanitarian assistance the case of course that we we just can't forget is the marshall plan now the lots of special factors marshall plan too often we forget that you know europe was developed in many ways before the war they had the human capacity the marshall plan was critical i would say it's the the greatest act of intelligent charity of any national action perhaps of history. Uh, so again, I think the analysis of this book, on uh, many areas are right, and I, I'm, I struggle with bureaucracies, I struggle with, uh, with nation building, uh, lots of things. But I, I, I think this book, as helpful as it is, could significantly benefit by saying, look, we understand that there are significant contributors to, uh, to economic growth and betterment of the human condition. It's political stability. It's reasonable economic policies. It's educated people. It's creating new technology. Uh, and frequently, it's infrastructure. There's some things that that have to be done, or at least significantly help to get done. And I believe that the focus of your concern should be should be sharper. And I also, and and I'm I'm respectful of the diligence and work and. And I know you're a thoughtful, smart guy, so I don't I I, I want to be careful how I talk about this, but this is really a, a pessimistic book. I'm glad you had those last few paragraphs of optimism. <laughs> because my experience is that, and I think probably most of our experience is that there, there are always huge problems in societies, in our communities, big things. And you know, you can either say the glass is half full or half empty, and, and so often it's taken individuals, it's taken groups who are willing to, to bet against the odds. And, and very often, those, those individuals, those groups, were able to mobilize government resources to help them to get there. And I, I am fundamentally a believer that uh, if this world can, can avoid some, some nuclear holocaust, if we can, if we can uh, uh, handle some, some issues such as that, uh, the world has a pretty bright future. And, and it's going to take uh, some betting against the odds, as we've done in the past. And doctor, it's good to be here with you, and I appreciate uh, the thoughtful, hard work that you've done, and analysis that you've done. I think this is a, a good discussion.
0: Thank you. Well, I guess I'll uh, ask Dr. Coyne if he'd like to respond to some of those criticisms.
1: Sure. Well, thank you very much. Uh, you're a lot kinder than a lot of other people, so you were. You, I appreciate it. Uh, I just want to touch on a couple of the points. The first is I actually think we're more in agreement than you let on in your comments. Things like vaccines, the Green Revolution, those fall within my my uh, framework of increasing outputs. Building a system to deliver something from point A to B, delivering food systems, those are technological issues. That are, that's humanitarian logistics, if you will. We can do that. Those are technological issues. Uh, and we have lots of cases of those things working. Uh, but again, those are not shocking things. I want you to think about your own lives. When I take my little daughter to get vaccinated or enroll in school, I don't go home and be like, that's a real breathtaking success. I, it's a, it's a, I take it for granted. The, the fascinating question is, why in developed countries are we able to take that for granted, and other countries aren't? The, the nice thing is, is I'm able to look up doctors on my iPhone uh, and schools and, and compare different things and have options, which other people don't. There's a bigger issue of development that's uh, at work here. And so what we have to ask ourselves is, why aren't vaccines? Why isn't education available in those other societies? And as you pointed out, uh, it's because of bad policies at the government level. So. Ultimately, the best we can do is increase short term welfare by immediate humanitarian relief. Those are things like vaccines Now you might say that's longer term because someone's vaccinated for a long period of time it's still short term because in my view because it doesn't increase standards of living over time. You give someone a vaccine they 're vaccinated against it. Of course, it makes them better off. but without other stuff, their life is not going to be any better right they're just going to be, if they're starving, but they have a vaccine or if they can't get an education open a business then both themselves and the broader society is not going to develop. A few other points I just wanted to raise. We're going to, as I have not read, and I've read a lot on economic development, and there's a lot more I need to read, we don't know as economists how to create economic development. A review of all the literature, one review, identified 145 different empirical variables that are statistically significant for economic growth. If you just look at the history of of fads in in USAID, not USAID, United States, aid giving first it was physical capital we need to invest a lot of money in building roads and schools that wasn't working and it's like no human capital education now we figured that out that wasn't working Oh, Washington consensus we need to reform the institutions it's just a. it's a as long as you can keep saying we're, we're learning we're figuring things out it gives you carte blanche to keep spending money and doing things if that makes me a pessimist to say you don't know what you're doing we don't know we should just say that and let's just not keep throwing bad uh, good money after bad uh, until we actually understand, have a firm understanding, never a perfect understanding, or constrain ourselves to things like uh, the vaccines you pointed out, or addressing things like the Green Revolution, things like that, I, I don't view that as, as a bad thing. So if that makes me a pessimist, then uh, I'll, I'll gladly take that, uh, take that, uh, that title. Uh, a few other things, Marshall Plan. If I had a nickel every time I heard this, I could feed the poor in the the entire world. The, somehow somehow, the Marshall Plan has been idealized as, as a glorious uh, program that somehow was like the ideal aid program. There's a wonderful art article, which is one of many, by my colleague Tyler Cowen. It's called Myth and Realities of the Marshall Plan. It's in a book published by the Heritage Foundation. He just points out five common myths uh, of, of the Marshall Plan. And... Uh, it's not that it had no effect, by the way, but it wasn't some glorious panacea that somehow lifted people from, from poverty up to high levels of development. Uh, first of all, it was a very small percentage of their economy. If you look at actual, again, economists use GDP figures, whether it was all the problems I pointed out. Never was it more than 5% of GDP for any country that received it. So it was a small amount of their economic activity. Further, if you look at variance across countries, Some countries were growing before they received it, received aid through the Marshall Plan. Some countries who were receiving it had no growth or negative growth, and other countries grew after it stopped. So how do you isolate the effect? Let's keep in mind, by the way, that we kept in effect the Nazi price controls and economic controls over the economy while we were occupying it. So it's not like this was some panacea of freedom and liberty and that we helped them grow. We injected a, a good amount of money into a country. As you pointed out, there's lots of other variables we'd have to control for in terms of human, existing human capital, existing knowledge, existing industries, and so on. Uh, so it's very hard to, to make the claim that somehow that's the ideal policy. And even if it is, let's say I granted that it was, that's a long time ago. So let's put that aside and say, Why don't we have, I hear people say, we need a Marshall Plan for Egypt. We need a Marshall Plan for Afghanistan. No, we don't. What we need is economic freedom. And as you pointed out opening your comments, lots of people have been removed from extreme poverty. That's driven by China, and it's driven by China because China, for the good of its citizens, has reformed to become more market-oriented. It's not that aid had no effect, but it's really the market reforms that are driving that development. And we should keep, keep that in mind. So as we think through these things, he's gotta give me some opportunity. Yeah. I wanna I wanna keep I want to be sure, Doctor. I wanna emphasize one fair. more point. There's the scene <laughs> and the unseen. Everything that, that proponents of Aid point out is the scene. There's lots of nice things they can point out, and it makes skeptics or pessimists look like the crazy ones. Like here's good stuff that happened. Sorry, you know, glass half full, half empty. But I'd say, what about the unseen? What about the people that are harmed by these policies that, that we tend to forget? What about all the wasted money that could have gone to help people? What about uh, the, the pain and suffering that we caused people by propping up corrupt regimes? And there's plenty of empirical sub, uh, studies that show that foreign aid props up corrupt governments and prevents reform. What about those type of things? Who's going to? Be penalized when you undertake bad policies. More often than not, it's no, it's no, it's no one. So I, these, this is my my main point: the seen and the unseen. Keep that in mind as you hear, uh, as you hear the the stories, the positive stories, and 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 uh, conclude for yourself. Are you more confident in the effectiveness of government to do this or not to do it, given the constraints that we know about how
2: government acts? Well, then, do we agree that the definition that you had in your book, which is that we should, the outer limit of humanitarian action should be short-term alleviation of suffering. Now, if you, I I think you've said, okay, I don't really, I was a little too restrictive there. Uh, The research for the Green Revolution, uh, the long-term effort to get ORT and vaccines, that kind of stuff, that really, that's, that should be there. I, I think you've said that. Now, I, I really don't agree that we don't know, that I don't agree as to whether we know something about how to, how, to, how to create growth and improvement. I think we know, and you would argue, we know that if we can create an environment uh, uh, of economic policy uh, that's important. Now, that doesn't just happen by passing laws. You have to, you have, to have people that know about how to implement it. it you have to have, if you're, if you're going to open up markets, then there has to be folks, there has to be roads. For example, if you free up the price of commodities at the farm gate, if the farmer doesn't have any roads to get the food to the market, it's still a real problem. There's lots of things that we we know how to do. It's policy, it's education. Uh, I would, it's technology. You know, we think in the U.S. economy, there's broad agreement that in the last 30, 40 years, uh, technology has been a, prim- a primary instigator of probably 50% or more of our growth. Uh, there's, I would submit, uh, Doctor, that there's much we do know, and we shouldn't throw up our hands. That's why I'm being a, saying you're a little pessimistic, doctor. But I, I know you want to be optimistic, so there's, there's a lot we do know, and there's a lot we know that's been wrong, too. And I don't dismiss that. Remember, I'm a Marcus guy by profession. Uh, so, so I think that that more focus on what's been achieved would be helpful here. No, let's see what questions we got. you want to
0: respond at all to
1: his No, I, I think in some sense we're in a weird way in agreement here because I don't deny the technology point, but here's the interesting thing. Why do we get technology in the United States and other developed countries and not elsewhere? It's technology is discovered by entrepreneurs and really, a lot of these efforts export technology to other countries and societies and make them better off. But here's the interesting question. Why isn't that technology being exported like it is in other cases through private initiative? In other words, why do we need people in government to export it? And to a large extent, it's, again, because of the predatory and extractive institutions in other countries. Uh, and so ultimately, uh, you know, until we resolve that, even if you can apply short-run he- uh, you know these short-run efforts which i agree fully with can help they also can cause a lot of harm but they can help it's not going to generate long-term sustainable would development
2: who, would you be willing to uh, uh to support some long-term training of people in this country uh, from parts of africa
1: uh would i be willing to it, let's say i need, there, I need a specific for
2: for engineers and and economists and does, uh, sure, so I'm the on.
1: director of graduate studies at George Mason. I admit foreign students all the time. I'm very willing to p- admit students to our programs to study and they can apply like, and yeah, so from that standpoint, But yes. They need
2: to go back home because when you, when you look at when countries really change, really develop, almost always there's some relationship to their having greater human capacity, right? It's not, it, poor people with no education have a tough time even if there's market policies that are decent. You can make it work a lot better if people have capacity. Let's see what people have questions they have.
0: Great, we're gonna open up the discussion to questions from the audience. Uh, Please uh, phrase your question in the form of a question. Uh, Please emphasize uh, concision in your (laughs) question. Uh, You will be cut off if you uh, pontificate for too long. I think uh, we'll begin uh, with, uh, I guess, the gentleman right here in the front.
3: Thank you. Warren Coates from the International Monetary Fund. Um, The question question is, which I will follow with a little elaboration, and excuse my voice, Uh, would you please uh, elaborate a little bit more on the missing topic in my view of uh, the institutions of capitalism. Uh, Much of foreign aid takes the form of sharing best practice in terms of building institutions of capitalism you said dr cohen that all we need is economic liberty or freedom that doesn't drop out of the the sky it's something that is promoted by the institutions of capitalism we're thrilled that poverty has dropped in the last 20 years dramatically we're thrilled that the Cato-Fraser Index of Economic Freedom has shown a significant increase in that. Where did that come from? Much of that, by the way, was the rapid adoption of the institutions of capitalism in the former Soviet Union and and Eastern Europe. That all came from a very uh, big aid effort, and I think it was important.
2: Yeah, I think that institutions are critical. Uh, legal systems. I mean, it's it, it's always in, the way I think of institutions is is we're we're in, we're encased by institutions. Here we have schools, we have hospitals, we have people structures that keep the keep the lights working on and on. And you don't you don't have so much of that and in developing countries, and how can you help prod that along? Uh, you don't, uh, so I, I'm i a, a huge supporter of human capacity and institutional building. Now, doing it efficiently uh, is a real trick. We know a lot more about how to train people efficiently than we do about institutional building. Uh, but I think it's, they they got to go hand in hand.
1: Um, I'm, I'm a I'm This is gonna sound odd. I'm not a big fan of institution building because for me what institution building tends to mean is a bunch of uh, Supposed experts informing other people how to build certain institutions That they should live under uh, and here's when I say all we need is economic freedom It sounds too simple all we need like it falls from the sky as you mentioned it's a, it's a very good point So what can we do given if you buy my position that we actually don't know how to do this and really if we try to do it? Number one, we're imposing our views on other people because the way I view institutions is both formal rules and informal rules, what people might call culture beliefs. And here's why this is important. We talk about property rights, we talk about capitalism, but if you look historically, property rights, they're not some predefined bundle. They serve an important function, but the form they take in different societies varies because of historical experiences, informal norms and belief systems and so on. (laughs) This is a large part of the reason that we can't impose them. When I say we, first world con- governments of, of first world countries, because what we do is try to impose our beliefs on them. Think about it like this. The US Constitution's relatively short. If it's very effective, why don't we just hand that to Afghanistan and say, follow this. Worked for us pretty well for at least a couple hundred years. Not so Not so sure about now, but, right? Because their belief systems don't support the words that are written on the parchment. So. What do you need to have strong formal norms? You need to have some kind of belief system that ultimately supports them. What do you think of
2: the Millennium Challenge Corporation?
1: Uh, I think, here's what I think about the Millennium Challenge Corporation. I think it sums up aid perfectly, which is a focus on collectivism and nationalism at the expense of individuals. And this idea of training people and sending them back Sums that up perfectly as well. Why do we want to train people and force them to go back or send them back? This is the brain drain argument because we don't really care about individuals. We have national goals, collective collectivism. That's why this is development is collectivism, the way it's practiced by the United States and other developed countries. It's a a bureaucratic top-down process where a group of experts who are very smart on paper impose their views and suppose intelligence on other people and, and rearrange the world like it's a science project, like we just move these people here, move them here, educate them here, then we get it. And so what do I think about it? Look, here's what we, when I say all we need is development, governments around the world can allow their people to get wealthy, stop beating them and taking their property. Right, So I, how many times have I heard, well, we need foreign aid to reform the government? No, you don't. Just stop taking people's stuff. And if you stop taking people's stuff, they'll invest money, and you'll get development. Now you'll say it's not that simple. right? And it's not, because they don't want to do it. They're self-interested people that like taking stuff. And that's ultimately the problem. But giving them aid doesn't solve that. They just have more money to take now. right? So you get bad people in charge without constraints. Giving them a lot of money just perpetuates the problem. It doesn't solve it.
0: Peter, do you have a response to Chris's answer to the question? Well,
2: I uh, I think we've I, I believe that market forces are important. When we were at AID I was personally involved in financing the initial studies that Hernando de Soto uh, did in Peru which have had such a big impact. And uh, at the same time it, it just feels like you're saying, Look, let, we don't know what we, what we don't know how to do anything over there anyway. And uh, so let's just stay out of it and see how it works out, because there are good enough people they'll figure it out. Well, I, I, I don't think that I think the world is, would have been much worse off if that'd been our policy since World War II. But I, under, I, I take your point. I just think that there's, and I'm glad that you see, that you would agree that that uh, certain research would be helpful. Um, I would take it one step further. I want to train people in developing countries so they can do their own research. Uh, and I, I think that's one step further away from your uh, only serve people directly. I, It'd be interesting, we're not gonna do it here, but I'll bet you I could have a good discussion with you and get a set of agreements on on actions that are beyond immediately uh, serving people that are suffering. Uh, the uh, The world has some responsibility, in my judgment, for trying to better people, and I think it's a vision that this country is well embodied.
0: The lady in red? (laughs) Oh, please wait for the microphone to come to you. Please wait for the microphone to come to you.
2: I'm a nurse and I think a kind person and in my heart I want to put Time and effort and money to help transform the world's people for the better. Um, I had a friend from another country who said something that gave me a lot of thought. And this kind of tails on to what you were saying. And he said, sometimes... American aid in their part of the world is seen as economic colonialism, and their, their part of the world has a history of colonialism. How can we help, um, and this is particularly directed to Mr. McPherson, how can we help and still respect, the while still respecting the values and desires of those we're trying to help? Well, well I'm, I, am, I am intrigued uh, with what the Millennium Challenge Corporation has done, which is to say to countries, you're making progress. You develop a program on how, what more you want to do, uh, and we will try to fund it, rather than we going in and telling them how to do it. Now, that's a relatively stricted program. It only goes to countries that have shown a whole series of careful commitments that they are willing to improve. I think it's right. If if I were to look at at uh, how we look at development today, as opposed to 1981 when I took over AID, I think we're we have we have learned more that we got to listen to other countries. Uh, it, it, forget whether it's it's uh, it feels good to people; it's more effective. Essentially, development is about enhancing the capacity and power of, of countries to do for themselves. And the spirit of what you've just said, I think, is right.
0: Dr. McPherson, just as a follow-up, uh, what would you say to those who are in those recipient countries who call US uh, foreign assistance a form of economic colonialism?
2: Well, it. I, I would say that that generally that certainly isn't the case now during the cold war when we were struggling there were two blocks in the world and we were struggling to to have our influence over one group and russia soviet union over another there was a stronger case wasn't there uh, that that there were two blocks it was a sort of colonialism i suppose though i wouldn't use that word uh, but i think it's the, i think ultimately people's lives get better as they assume more and more responsibility for themselves. And so we've got to avoid that. But I think they can be assisted. I think you can lift burdens from people Mm -hmm. uh, so that they can be more powerful with education, with tools, uh, technology, and so forth. Do you have a response?
1: Just very quickly on this, uh, two things. Uh, the, the thing about sitting back and just letting things play out, I, I raised one issue that I would get rid of right away, which is agricultural subsidies and barriers to entry domestically, both here and in other countries. Uh, that's not sitting back and doing nothing. That is, we'll raise a lot of people out of poverty. Uh, And the fact that we can't do that because of special interest groups summarizes the problem with a lot of foreign aid in your point as well, which is a lot of foreign aid is captured by special interests who benefit their narrow members uh, at the expense of both taxpayers domestically uh, as well as citizens abroad. Think about a simple program, uh, simple in in concept at least, like food for peace. So we're going to give food to other countries, when they're, when they're starving, it uh, sounds good, sounds easy. Well, we don't buy the food right by them. Instead, we tie it to U.S. producers. Um, your uh, predecessors at USAID, Andrew Nazio's has tried to change this and, and struggled with it. And now they're trying to change it again. But who's preventing this? Agricultural producers in the United States. Shipping industry members in the United States who want the benefits of that the broader point here is let's not pretend like there's some broader global humanitarian ideal and there's really benevolent well-meaning people who are sitting either in washington dc or in a field office and then they take every action they take is for the greater good we inject lots of money into places it's an intense competition and what happens is money is not allocated based on some higher ideal of need and suffering it's who wins the political competition and uh that is not pessimistic that is not to that is not to say just sit back it's the reality of politics and we even see that domestically uh so these these views um you know of colonialism uh the the only way around it is not to do it uh but we can still free up domestically we can free up lots of markets and lots of ways that help people and be very active in removing human suffering
2: well, I think you've said the only answer is not to do it, and and I, I we've argued I've argued here that there are a lot of things we should do. And now, I I, I also th- you've said several times we don't know how to do things. Well, you've just argued we do know how to do things. I support and have been signed a letter to Congress a few weeks ago on the president's in support of the president's freeing up, allowing some of the food to be that we deliver to be purchased locally, what Andrew has argued. And what I probability
1: support, do you think that will
2: happen? Well, I, I, well who knows, so, but it's a mistake for it not to happen. And we have to keep on fighting to do this. We have to keep on working out a lot of policies, but that doesn't mean there isn't other things that we should do overseas.
1: But if we, can't, if we can't deliver food without interest groups co-opting it, what gives any confidence that we can do education and X, Y, and Z? There is a- Very little.
0: Great People are standing enthusiasm. up. Enthusiasm. Uh, I guess the, the gentleman, the first gentleman is standing um, right here in the glasses. Wow.
2: <laughs> what time are we through? Oh, My name's Gordon Johnson,
4: and I would like to respond a little bit on the Marshall Plan. That I came to work in Washington in 1950 to work in the Marshall Plan, and you've, it was econ- an economic program, but I want to assure you that the real objective was a war for mines, Communism. The Russians could move right through to the uh, to the Channel without opposition up until 1952. We, it was the prediction. We had communists in the Italian government. We had a communist all through, and it was very much a war for minds. And when you think about the aid pro- pro- programs since. You're right. They've all been government to government. There's been an anti-private sector bias through most of the organization, regardless of what the bosses may say at the top. uh, (laughs) There's a certain amount of rubber rudder at work in what the people are doing. But we do not have countries that have received our aid that have gone communists. We are making – we have made progress in helping move them towards more free market principles than they would be without our aid, I suggest. So it comes down to – I think the you've, you've pointed out that the government has problems doing aid programs. I would suggest that the universities have real problems in educating people to understand free markets, which are advocating. Uh, government can't do very thank you, well. Thank doing you so that. much for you your point, sir. We have many other people who
0: I'd like to ask questions.
4: Support from the universities to understand that competitions are a discovery process. Great, thank you. Why don't
2: we have, have some more questions?
0: Okay, well, let's ask. Uh, the gentleman in the hat.
5: My name is Yaya Fanousi, I'm with the United States of Africa 2017 Project Task Force. When that lady came out of the book that Africa doesn't need foreign aid, we were saying that in the early 60s and we looked like we were crazy. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much for creating, and your book is mainly an ideological critique of the failed development and political strategic development purpose of Mr. McPherson's of the communist uh, east-west conflict. It failed. I'm from Africa. We don't need foreign aid. And your requirement, what are the things you talk about? And you said you know certain formulas. Yes, there are certain things that we know for development, but they are not sufficient. This real sufficient thing you didn't mention, and I know you will not mention it. There should be, for what you're saying to happen, there should be a social revolution in Africa where we get a new set of people with new power relationships who will impose free market. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. I guess uh, we'll bundle it with another question. Uh, the young lady right there in the blue shirt, right there. Hi, I'm Christina Pullen from the Urban Libertarian blog. Um, I'm very interested in the aspect of shifting more the responsibility to private people. More specifically, social entrepreneurship has become a really big deal, especially with dealing like more with local domestic issues. And also now we have things like Kickstarter and lots of crowdfunding options for people to actually put their money towards specific different aims. So I was curious if you actually knew of a couple of maybe people or good examples of how maybe functions like Kickstarter could actually be used in a way that would actually benefit Problems in international ways.
2: Well, I, I don't, I don't know that I have a specific example to point out, but I would say that over the last twenty years, uh, the the possibilities in developing countries have changed enormously. The international capital flows to places like Bolivia or. Or some parts of sub-Saharan Africa that didn't exist before are now there. The international NGO community, for better or for worse, and some people have been critical, uh, is a much bigger factor than when I was there at AID in the 80s. And and this, the information technology tools are really changing things. Mm-hmm. The hundreds of millions of cell phones in Africa, mm-hmm. we're getting you know this this discussion which we've had the last hour and a half in many ways is kind of static because it's about the old world mm-hmm. but i think that a lot of so much is happening in control of individuals in 10 years if we have the discussion again and look at what's happened in the meantime it'll be different
1: um you know i in terms of specific charities or or um, non private nonprofits or social entrepreneurs, i don't have a whole list, but you know one thing that's that's at least really picked up in the blogosphere over the last week from development blogs is the idea of direct cash transfers and This came out of a paper uh, by Chris Blatman uh, who did a, an experiment in Uganda and they gave people just gave people money uh, and, and didn't attached strings to it. Didn't attach conditions to it, and it had a positive effect in terms of the indicators they used. Uh, and there, there's websites like that. I think one's called like Give Directly, um, and things like that. When it's run by former people, um, like you were mentioning it from banking or venture capitalists, um, and their idea is that instead of um, kind of imposing certain conditions on people, um, they're just going to transfer cash, and, and they can decide. Mm-hmm. Cash transfers have been going on for a long time. A lot of people in Government agencies don't like it or don't support it for two reasons. One is uh, conditionality. In other words, they can't, if that you allow people to do whatever you want, um, then they might spend it on things that you disapprove of. We do that here in the United States too with welfare programs. We say when you get food stamps, for instance, you only can spend it on certain things because we don't want people spending it on alcohol and cigarettes, right? for instance. But I think a broader issue with a lot of this stuff is, is and I mentioned this, is there's this mentality that, that kind of permeates a lot of these efforts where people in other parts of the world don't know stuff or can't figure it out. And they need to be told how to do certain things. And th- there's a difference, I think, and it gets blurry at points, but there's a difference between transferring knowledge that's known. So for instance, I have a superior fertilizer and if you use it, it'll, it will help you grow crops. Okay. And you are, to lack a better word, not that smart. Mm-hmm. I am, and I'm gonna tell you what to do and how to do it because I know. Um, and, and this goes back to your point about colonization. This is the white man's burden lifting up the savages of the world that we when colonization went on, people were very blunt that that's what they were doing. Uh, it's politically incorrect to say those things now. But those accusations exist about uh, foreign intervention in general. And I don't oft, sometimes I don't think they're wrong.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. OK,
2: oh. look, where are we?
0: A final question, I guess, uh, to the gentleman in the glasses right there in the red tie.
4: My name's Terence Byrne. I'm retired from the Department of State. The governments and NGOs have been very busy in Haiti since the earthquake for the last three years. How well have they done in building Haiti the way it should have been in the first place?
2: <laughs> well, they clearly haven't done very well. I mean, there are just all kinds of problems. I, I, am, uh, I am skeptical about uh, nation building, particularly of very poor countries over a few years' period of time. It's just very hard, and we've never, we've, there's not a good example of having achieved it. If you look at, at very poor countries, you do a number of things, you got stable government, sound economic policies. Uh, over a generation, a lot can happen but over three or four years. I was there at AID when baby doc was uh, running the country. And we, it was just a Congress always appropriated a bunch of money for Haiti. Uh, I ran none of it through the government. Uh, We did some concrete things that I think were helpful, but it was trouble.
1: Well, there's, again, if you look up especially because we just um, went through the third anniversary of, of the earthquake uh, and, and the start of the recovery efforts. There's disagreements on this, and a lot of it depends on what you define as success. They've delivered food, water, some health care, shelter in, in form of tent cities. Now, the problem is, what next? And this is why I'm so skeptical in many cases of even short-term humanitarian aid, because now comes the now what. So we've given someone a tent. So do you just say, there you go and go home? Nope, now there's a whole long-term development plan. And to capture the mentality of what I've been talking about, if you just look up the development plan for Haiti, it was written by Paul Collier, the author of The Bottom Billion. It's 19 pages, 19 double space pages plan for, for economic policies for an entire country. And that's exactly the kind of mentality that underpins these type of things. And then you get politics, you get Sean Penn, you get Bill Clinton. What do these individuals know about Rebuilding an entire country uh, and overseeing millions upon millions upon millions of dollars, uh, if not billions of dollars, I should say. Uh, and so it's, it's a mess, and there's no clear exit strategy. Uh, you know, Haiti is a perfect example of what we call the Samaritan's Dilemma, which is years ago we provided aid, whether it was to help people. Or more likely for strategic purposes that 's why we propped up the dictatorship in that country for for decades, Of course, a significant part of their budget was u s foreign aid because they couldn 't raise tax revenue because they were predating on their citizens. Uh, now, what do you do? Do you stay there for more de- for, for subsequent decades and keep giving them handouts then they 'll never become self sufficient Do you leave and then people suffer in the short run? Alternatives are, are to think about at least are some of the things I mentioned, like migration policy and things along those lines, uh, and how those can, can help, uh, help people that are suffering. There's no easy solution, but uh, I, don't, and I don't have one if there, if there is.
2: I don't have a solution to Haiti for sure, but I think to put it a little in perspective globally, it's interesting to look at Bangladesh, uh, let's say 1975, when they became independent. And Henry Kissinger said, as a matter of triage, it should be forgotten. Uh, now, the, fire, the terrible loss of life recently shows real problems. But, and Bangladesh has had its governance questions. But Bangladesh has struggled to feed itself, uh, has put together a, a number of things that have really been constructive. And even though it's trouble, it, it isn't Henry Kissinger's uh, triage situation. And I, I, re, I was a Peace Corps volunteer right at the beginning of the Alliance for Progress in Peru in 1963, four. And I, I, I go back to Peru quite often. And Latin America is just so different, uh, so much better off generally. So, and I, I think of those uh, great projects and great men and women uh, over the decades, both in the countries and, and globally that have made real contributions. And I think we've learned. So we've learned some things uh, we shouldn't do and things we should do. Uh, politics too often intrudes, there's no question. Uh, what's new, I suppose. Uh, But basically, uh, I'm quite hopeful, actually.
0: And with that, uh, we'll bring this discussion to a close. I'd like to thank our speakers, Dr. Christopher Coyne and Dr. Peter McPherson.